Christ's single sacrifice meriting a single pardon means not remembering sin anymore. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to teach us, even as we have sung this hymn together, reflecting the teaching of this text before us today, as we now come to your word, so work Holy Spirit, work through me that I would be faithful, work through us that we would be faithful hearers of your word, bless us and remind us of the good things of Christ, that we are forgiven, in his name we pray, amen. Would you turn to Hebrews chapter 10 as we look at verses 1 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, Christ came into the world. He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, will will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of God. Please be seated. When I think of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, I think of a plant, a plant with a bud that ultimately those buds will open up and you will experience and realize a beautiful flower. In a sense, the bud is a shadow because it causes us to anticipate the flower to be revealed, the good things of the flower. The writer of Hebrews speaks similarly, I believe, in our text today. The Old Testament sacrificial system served as a shadow of the good things to come and thus pointed 
to the true form, the reality pointed to Christ by whom sin is taken away and sinners find forgiveness and pardon once and for all. As we continue this sermon series on hold fast in Christ, we'll consider two points today. The text bears this out. The shadow, and secondly, the true form. So first, let's look at the shadow. By the way, you'll find those two points listed on page 8 of your bulletin. First, the shadow of the good things to come was the Old Testament law that governed worship of the tabernacle and the practice of the sacrificial system. And we find the shadow discussed in verses 1 through 4. So the writer of Hebrews tells us that the shadow was limited. Verses 1 through 2, we're reminded, as we've already learned in Hebrews, that the animal sacrifices were continually offered. We think of the Day of Atonement, this, this annual event for the great high priest would offer these animals and take the blood into the Holy of Holies, Leviticus chapter 16, to atone for the sins of the people. But our writer in Hebrews says this annual day of atonement could not make perfect those who drew near. And the act of making perfect is clarified in verse 2. Verse 2 tells us that those who draw near to God, the worshiper, having a cleansed conscience resulting from pardon of guilt and their sin being forgiven, that the Old Testament saint did not fully have that. That was yet to come in Christ. The act of making perfect, cleansing inwardly, pardon, forgiveness. The proof of this limitation, the, the writer of Hebrews tells us, is the fact that the worshipers had to continually offer these, these sacrifices to God. This shadow had substantial limits affixed to it. It was not lasting. It did not finally and fully deal with sin. It could not deal with the inward man the inward woman, the human, the condition of the human heart. And King David understood this as we sang, God be merciful to me based on Psalm 51. Let me just read two verses in Psalm 51 where David says in his psalm, which is his confession of sin, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. In verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. But we need to understand something very clearly. The shadow, the Old Testament, though the sacrificial system of the Mosaic Covenant was limited, it was important. And let me just say, we need to study the Old Testament. It is part of God's inspired word. But in verse 3, our author here in Hebrews reminds us that this annual observance on the Day of Atonement, which is, I believe, what he has in mind here, was a reminder of man's sin problem. 
and a reminder of the solution to that problem was only by the shedding of blood. It, it showed, however, that the blood sacrificed or offered in that Old Testament economy did not solve the problem finally, but it pointed to the good things to come, the true form which the shadow represented, God's provision of a once-for-all sacrifice, a once-for-all shedding of blood, that would deal with the sin problem and the moral defilement within. The Apostle Paul speaks of the law, for example, functioning similarly to what I believe the writer of Hebrews is suggesting here. If you look to Romans chapter 7, and in particular verse 9, the Apostle Paul says that that the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, the law of God, pointed out his sin and his need for a Savior. And it also showed him that the law was not the Savior. At the very end of chapter 7, Paul gives thanks to God in pointing to Jesus as the Savior. Again, the law pointing, the shadow of the Old Testament law governing worship and the sacrificial system pointing to the reality, pointing to the true form, pointing to Jesus, who was to come and bring good things, dealing with sin once and for all. The shadow of the continual sacrifices reminded the original recipients of this letter, who, by the way, were being pressured, as we have said often, to forsake Christ and return to Judaism, that it reminded them, and it reminds us even today, that first of all, sin must be dealt with. And sin must be dealt with by the shedding of blood. And the shedding of the blood of animals does not deal with sin. It does not take away sin, as our text tells us. But the true form, the Lord Jesus Christ, who broke forth in human history, who came, has dealt with our sin problem once and for all. The but of the Old Testament had opened, had produced a beautiful flower in the New Testament Christ. While the bud helps us understand the flower, and the flower helps us understand the bud, we understand the New Testament because of the Old, and we understand the Old Testament because of the New. The author's intention here is to challenge those Jewish Christian, Christians in his day and to challenge us not to forsake Christ, not to embrace the bud again. When you have the flower. Might we struggle with embracing the bud? We'll answer that question at the end. Second, the, the author turns to the good things to come by the true form, that to which the shadow pointed. And the shadow 
with this central feature being the, the offering of the blood of animals was incapable of dealing with sin. Look at verse 4. It did not take away sin, but it pictured the provision of God that would solve this sin problem plaguing God's people once and for all. So in verse 5, the author says, consequently, I mean, after he said the, the, the Old Testament shadow was incapable of dealing with sin problem in a lasting way, he says, consequently, one has come to deal with man's sin problem finally, and it is when Christ came into the world. Jesus, the, the bud opened up, Jesus comes into the world, breaks forth in human history. The, the, the beautiful flower has come, that which has been anticipated in the Old Testament. And by virtue of his blood, shed once, took away the sin of the world. And the author supports this glorious claim, this fundamental principle of the gospel by appealing to Psalm 40 that Carl read earlier. And the author restates verses 6 through 8 of that psalm in verses 5 through 7 of Hebrews 10. And here the, 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 the psalmist taught in Psalm 40 that God would not be pleased by the mere external offering of animal sacrifices, this, this, ritual, this ritual that was done in the sacrificial system. He would not be pleased with merely that void of the worshiper actually exhibiting faith, trust in God, being truly repented and, and, and seeing that as an opportunity for him to acknowledge his sin and confess it before God. In other words, just the external act did not please God. If Jewish believers to whom the letter was originally written thought God would be pleased if they abandoned Christ, the flower, and reverted back to the sacrificial system, the bud, they would be grievously mistaken. And so are we if we believe that God is pleased merely with our external conformity to the law. He demands a heart that believes, a heart that is broken by sin, a heart that is repentant. The author used Psalm 40 in two ways. And in another sense, not only was, was the author making this, this statement about God not merely being pleased with the external right, but also in Psalm 40, the, the, the writer of Hebrews uses it in a messianic way. In verse 5, the second part of verse 5, or the middle part of verse 5, the, the author states the inadequacy of the shadow, that is, the sacrificial system where animals were sacrificed. The, the writer of Hebrews uses Psalm 40, sacrifices and offering you have not desired. Then, right after that, in the third part of verse 5, the author refers to the true form when he says, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, if we remember Carl reading Psalm 40, if you were to go there, you would find that the actual, the actual text in Psalm 40 reads like this, but you have given me an open ear. 
And the literal translation of that is, ears you have dug for me. And so, likely what the psalmist is referring to in Psalm 40 is that God had literally created, given, enabled him to hear and understand what was being, what he, what was being communicated to him to then write down as part of the inspired word of God. But the author of Hebrews actually uses that same text, but gives it another, by the way, inspired meaning that really isn't too far off from what Psalm 40 originally said. The author obviously relies upon the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, the Septuagint. Which, understand, which understood the metaphor in Psalm 40 about the digging out of ears as actually referring to a physical body being created. And so the psalmist, or uh, the writer of Hebrews, understands the speaker of Psalm 40 as referring to the fact that indeed he will have a human body. A human nature. Now you should be able to pick up that obviously this is a reference to the incarnation here. And if we go back to Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 14 through 18, again, there the author speaks of the fact that Jesus indeed was fully God and fully man. But hold on to that thought for just a moment because we have to finish this reference to Psalm 40. Having stated the inadequacy of the shadow, then the reality of the true form, we go back to the inadequacy of the shadow. <clears throat> in verse 6a, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And then that is followed by, again, the true form. Verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come to you to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. All right, let's unpack this. Hebrews understands the speaker of Psalm 40 being Messiah, the Davidic Messiah. He shows that the shadow of the animal sacrifices were inadequate to deal with man's sin problem, but Messiah, who would come and take a full human nature, a body, in order to fulfill the Word of God, the will of God, detailed in the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures that promised a Redeemer to redeem God's people from sin. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. That though the, the, the shadow was inadequate to deal with sin, yet the speaker of Psalm 40, Messiah, would come to do what the shadow could not do. And then in verses 8 through 14, the author spells out the work of Jesus, the Redeemer. How did Jesus fulfill the will of God for our salvation? In verses 9 through 10, Jesus came to do the will of God by doing away with the first covenant. We've already talked about that. And establishing a second covenant whereby God's people would be sanctified. And if you look at chapters 7 through 9, that really is the theme 
Jesus coming to do away with the first covenant to establish the new covenant to inaugurate what will take away sin and redeem God's people. And then the means to establish the new covenant was through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 10, second part of verse 10 in Hebrews 10. And then in verse 11, the, 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 the Levitical priest, try saying that three times fast. The Levitical priest would offer the same sacrifices that were incapable of taking away sin repeatedly. And I just want to make a note here that Biblical scholars tell us that the Aaronic priest who would go in into the tabernacle to serve God would never sit down in the sanctuary. They always stood. Why? Because their work was never finished. But in verse 12, efficacy of the true form of the Lord Jesus Christ is so beautifully depicted. Our Lord, after his atoning work and resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, and Hebrews says, he sat down. Redemption accomplished, verse 12. The great New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce said this. I just love this. Write it down. A seated priest is guaranteed of a finished work and an acceptable sacrifice. Further, the perfection of Jesus' work is equally beautifully depicted in, in Hebrews in that Jesus sat down, and his enemies, all of his enemies, will be made a stool for Jesus' feet. And we know that victory was demonstrated in the ancient world by the victor placing his foot on the neck of his enemy conqueror. And let me tell you something. Jesus has plenty of enemies. There are a lot of enemies to Jesus in our day. They're all going to feel the underneath side of his foot. But the greatest enemy, the last enemy, is death itself. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, O oh death, where is your sting? O oh death, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Verse 14, I believe, just encapsulates the heart of what the writer of Hebrews is telling us here. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. A single offering. Redemption accomplished and applied fully. I believe sanctified here needs to be understood in this way. Union with Christ means we are accepted 
before God in Christ. We are made holy, not because we are holy, but we're accepted as holy in Christ. We're separated unto God in Christ, but it also means that while we are living today in Christ, we are progressively being sanctified. We are becoming what we're already accepted to be in one sense by our status as our, in, in our union with Christ. So think of what the writer is saying here is that we are sanctified, but we're becoming sanctified because of our union with Christ. And the author quotes Jeremiah 31 and verse 33. This is the second time the author has quoted Jeremiah 31. And he quotes Jeremiah 31 and 33 in verses 15 and 16. And and, and the reader is reminded of the spirit-inspired word of God given to Jeremiah where God promised he would change the heart of his people and enable them to repent and believe and to walk in obedience, to enable them as they endeavor to make their calling and election sure, as they go about the hard work of seeking progressively to be more and more like Jesus. It's because God has changed our heart. God has empowered us to repent, to do what he has called us to do in being sanctified. And, and, and we see this in, in, a, in a passage like, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 and following, Paul's, I call it Paul's prayer of sanctification for, for the Ephesians, where, where, where the Apostle Paul speaks of that through faith, the Holy Spirit pours out the love of Christ in, in, in the heart of the believer and works in that inward man, that inward woman to enable us to know the vastness of the love of God, that we might live for him. We might believe, repent, and walk in obedience that because of God's gracious work in our justification and in our sanctification, we are able to live consistent with the stipulations of the covenant. It's because of Christ. The author ends this section by, by showing in a powerful way the good things brought by the true form Christ. And so he adds another quote in Jeremiah 31, and Jeremiah 31, verse 34, where God says, in, this is verse 17 of Hebrews 10, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now, God is not a forgetful God. I am not God, but I'm forgetful. And many of us are becoming more forgetful. That's not what Jeremiah is saying here, and that's not what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. God is omniscient. But what is he saying? Let's look further. Look at verse 18. We, we find that the reason for God not remembering the sins of his people, and we, and we find this is also the reason for that thematic statement that I began this message with, Christ's single sacrifice Meriting a single pardon means remembering sins no more. Sins that are forgiven no more, I should add. 
And so let's unpack this. Christ's offering of himself once for all, fully and completely dealt with the problem of sin. His blood accomplished what all the blood of all those animals in the entire period of the shadow, the Old Testament, could not accomplish. Jesus' blood removed our sin and our guilt as a barrier in our relationship with God. We have to add forever, lastingly. His single offering brought the good things of a true and lasting forgiveness. A single offering is what caused God not to remember sin. And contrast the true form with the shadow. Under the Old Testament system, sin would be remembered. In fact, it was designed to call people to remember their sin and need for atonement. That annual day of atonement then was enacted. And the sin committed and remembered needed atonement yet again, over and over, annually, repeated continually. All that blood spilled on and on. The true form came to bring the end to that cycle. One single sacrifice was sufficient to remove the barrier of sin eternally such that God would not remember it. Remember it in the sense that our past sin that had been forgiven by God would never, ever, ever, let me say, ever be a barrier in our relationship with him again. Christ's single sacrifice, meriting a single pardon, means remembering, not remembering sins that have been forgiven. So I have two implications today that I'd like to to end with. And the, the, the first implication is this. When someone sins against us and they come to us and they ask forgiveness and we forgive them we need to forget about that sin it should never ever creep up in our relationship with that person again god forgets our many transgressions how can we not forget a sin where we have granted forgiveness of one of our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what it means as we, our profession of faith speaks of loving one another. This is one way we can love one another is actually to, to do what God does when he forgives. When we forgive, forget it. Don't let it creep back up in that relationship again. And if you think this is easy, think again. It's incredibly difficult. To truly forgive And to not let that forgiven sin crop up in our relationship demands a miracle of the Holy Spirit to give us the ability to change us and to pour out the love of Christ to overflowing in our hearts through faith that we would actually do what the Scriptures call us to do. So that is the first implication for us today. You forgive someone who has truly repented of their sin, forget it. 
And then secondly, when we sin against God and truly confess it and are forgiven, we need to forget it. God does it. We need to remember our sin, true. We must be contrite and humble. That's what David said in Psalm 51, true. We need to rightly own our sin, yes, indeed. We need to hate our sin. Thomas Watson gives six categories of repentance. He covers the the shorefront. And we need to run to Christ in prayer and confess it, yes, but we need to learn, and I should say, we need to learn from past sins, absolutely, but we must not morbidly dwell on sins already confessed and forgiven, as one commentator put it. Look at verse 18. There is no longer any offering for sin. I asked a question at the end of the first point. Might we struggle embracing the bud, the shadow, that was a continual offering for sin? We sin. We confess. We are forgiven. But here's what happens sometimes. We, we, we keep remembering it. We keep going over it again. We keep feeling the shame. We keep feeling the guilt all over again. And we think, that was so dumb. And it well, probably was really dumb. But we think, if I can just beat myself up a little bit more, if I can just... That sin is, God has already forgiven. Oh, but if, but if I can just make him realize that, yes, it, it did merit forgiveness by, by, by just dwelling on that sin and, and bringing it up over and over again. If I can just beat myself up, if I can just inflict a little bit more penance on myself. Maybe God will say, yeah, I guess I did do the right thing in forgiving that child of mine that I've already forgiven (laughs) again. I mean, have you ever experienced that? Just beating yourself up over past failures? So here are the options. Either you really truly weren't repentant to begin with, and you probably do need to beat yourself up and repent of it. Or you're just not living by the gospel. And I suggest that the latter probably is more the case. In effect, when we keep trying to make an offering for sin, when there's already been a single offering for sin made that has accomplished our forgiveness and pardon when we keep trying to make those offerings we're just simply not living by the gospel but living according to the shadow of the old testament sacrificial system that pointed to jesus instead of living 
united to Christ and his single sacrifice that has resulted in our pardon and our forgiveness such that God doesn't remember it anymore and why should we? Dear brother and sister, y'all look really good sitting out there and very attentive, I might say. But I know you're struggling with your sin. Why do I know that? Because I am. Go to Christ. Confess it. Be forgiven. Realize that barrier has been taken care of once and for all. And you don't need to offer anything more. We have the true form, the beautiful flower of Christ. And the implication is, is really distilled down into one verse that I would give you just to remind you of really what is the implication? What is the second implication? Here it is. The Apostle Paul gives us this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. The Apostle Paul is calling us not, not to go back and live under the bud, but to live in the reality of, of the true form, the flower, that to which the bud pointed, that to which the shadow pointed. Live in union with Christ. For you, listen, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Christ's single sacrifice, meriting a single pardon means we must not keep beating ourselves up for sins that he has forgiven. May we live as sons and daughters and not fall back into slavery in a bud-like life when we have the flower to enjoy. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do all would admit that we struggle in so many ways with past failures, past sins. But Father, remind us today of just the blessing that we have to live free in Christ, forgiven, pardoned. And may that give us encouragement to continue to hold fast to Christ and to know that in Christ all will be well. We pray this in his name. Amen.